Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at c-u-e-a-n-d-r-e-v-i-e-w.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 23rd of June 2021. News. National Trust for Scotland launches new campaign to tackle antisocial behaviour. This article is by Sarah Pacchieroni. A series of graphic images of serious damage caused around Scotland's natural beauty spots have been released as part of a new campaign. The National Trust for Scotland, NTS, is urging visitors to love this place, leave no trace, as it seeks to encourage them and campers to minimise their impact on these places. Staff have reported a rise in antisocial behaviour, which it says is endangering the environment, harming local communities and having a devastating effect on long-term conservation projects. One of the areas seriously affected over the past year has been Glencoe National Nature Reserve and Glenfinnan Monument in the Highlands. Emily Bryce, Operations Manager, said while the vast majority of visitors here in Glencoe and Glen Etive respect the landscape, unfortunately our ranger teams spend a considerable proportion of their time dealing with those who don't. Clearing up litter and human waste, repairing damage to paths, verges and fences, addressing the impact of deer entering new woodland enclosures due to gates being left open, and discouraging inconsiderate parking where car parks are at capacity. These activities are all essential, but they also take our valuable time away from ongoing nature conservation projects and wildlife monitoring. Chatting with other outdoor enthusiasts and championing responsible countryside access has always been a rewarding element of a ranger's role, and we find it makes a real difference when it comes to reducing antisocial behaviour at busy countryside places. Our teams have been out and about more than ever recently. On a busy Saturday walkabout, we might engage with over 400 walkers and wild campers. We've been working in partnership with our local community, neighbouring landowners and authorities to clearly signpost local facilities and develop long-term plans to sustainably accommodate visitors to the glens with sensitively designed infrastructure improvements. We need your help to continue with this work and empower people with the motivation and skills to leave no trace. This article is by Sarah Pacchiarini. The Herald, Wednesday the 23rd of June 2021. News. Scottish nursing leaders lodge formal trade dispute over pay. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. Nursing leaders have lodged a formal trade dispute with the Scottish Government for the first time as a row over pay escalates. Bosses at the Royal College of Nursing in Scotland said they had no choice but to notify ministers of the dispute amid serious concerns over the impact of wages on recruitment and retention in the profession. 
claiming worrying numbers of nurses are now considering quitting. Julie Lambert, the chair of the RCN Scotland Board, has written to Health Secretary Humza Yousaf. It comes after the Scottish Government confirmed last month that the pay deal, which offers NHS workers an average increase of 4%, was being implemented immediately after most unions voted to accept it. The wage rise, said by ministers to be the biggest pay uplift since devolution, applies to staff in the NHS apart from doctors, whose pay is negotiated separately. But the RCN has been campaigning for a 12.5% hike in wages, claiming nurses' pay has failed to keep pace with the rising cost of living in recent years. In her letter to the Health Secretary, Ms Lambert said, You have left us with no choice but to notify you of this dispute. The Scottish Government has relied on the goodwill of nursing staff for too long. For years we have been responding to the challenge of delivering safe and effective patient care in the face of increasing demands, staff shortages and low pay. These issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Nursing staff are exhausted with worrying numbers considering leaving the profession. Every patient needs and deserves the best quality of care. This can only be safely achieved with the right number of nursing staff with the right skills and expertise. Today's action, writing to the Cabinet Secretary to lodge our trade dispute, is a formal expression of our members' frustration and concern for patient safety. We are sending a clear message that the time to value nursing as a safety-critical profession is now. Labour said the Scottish Government must take notice of this unprecedented step and resolve this dispute by giving nurses a fair pay deal. Health spokeswoman Jackie Bailey said, Nicola Sturgeon has been more than happy to stand on her doorstep and clap for our nurses, but they don't need a PR stunt. What they really need is a decent pay rise. This should have been an opportunity to give nurses the recognition they deserve after decades of underappreciation. Instead, their voices have been ignored to the extent that RCN Scotland has had to enter into a trade dispute for the first time in their history. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. Recorded from the Herald on the 23rd of June 2021. From the Sports section, Edinburgh's Cami Hutchison pins first pro contract at age 23 after going through a system. By Stuart Bathgate. Perseverance has paid off for Cami Hutchison, who at the age of 23 has signed his first professional contract with Edinburgh. An international at age group level, Hutchison has had to take a circuitous route to securing a place in Richard Cockerell's squad, having played in France before joining Harriet's for the inaugural Super 6 season in 2019-2020. The terms of the centre's new deal means he will still be available to the Golden Acre Club when not required by Edinburgh, but Cockerell was impressed by his try-scoring debut against Ulster earlier this month and thinks he has the potential to continue his progress. We're really pleased to offer Cammy his first professional contract, the head coach said yesterday. He's shown a lot of grit and determination to force his way into contention, and we were delighted with how he performed and took his opportunity once he got out on the pitch. He is a great example of how the system can recognise and reward promising players who have the talent but also the desire to pursue a dream with his local team. Hopefully he'll use this first pro deal as another springboard to kick on once more. Hutchison's initial plan 
had been to break into the pro rank sooner. Bia appears determined to seize his chance now it has been offered. I'm delighted, he said. It's been a long road for me to get to this point, so I feel very fortunate, lucky and really grateful for the support network that's helped me over the past few years in particular. This is now the starting point. It's come later than I probably would have hoped and planned when I was leaving school and going through Scotland under 20, but I feel I've had the full experience of what going through the system really means. Now I'm in the pro environment, this is where the hard work really begins. It's the start of my career in a sense and I'm really looking forward to getting into it. That article was by Stuart Bathgate. From the Herald Scotland dated Thursday 23rd June 2021 from the Voices section. The new three a day. Has coffee become a health food? An article by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. Without my morning coffee, I'm just like a dried up piece of roast goat, Johann Sebastian Bach once said. Ah yes, indeed. Centuries later, many of us would agree. That's why, whenever another new piece of research around the health benefits of coffee turns up, it's greeted with great fanfare as has been the case with a new study from the University of Southampton, which found that drinking coffee can cut the risk of developing chronic liver disease or fatty liver disease. Hang on, haven't health experts long told us that coffee is bad for us? Absolutely. In the not-so-distant past, the World Health Organisation in 1991 classified it as a possible carcinogen and the world was full of warnings about the demon coffee, which was then thought to be linked with high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. But more and more, it seems the research around coffee is nothing but a good news story. This study into liver disease and coffee is one of just many. There are others that have linked coffee consumption to reduce risk of Parkinson's, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, gallstones, depression liver cancer, melanomas and prostate cancer. Does this mean I can prevent liver disease by offsetting a boozy bender with an espresso nightcap? Nope, even coffee does not have such superpowers. Is there any end to these coffee health studies? I know, I know. Sometimes it seems we are obsessed with measuring our lives out with coffee spoons. It's one of the most studied of beverages, up there with red wine for hours spent in discussion of health impacts. Only unlike red wine, it's looking like the benefits of coffee far outweigh the negatives. A 2017 meta-analysis published in the British Medical Journal found coffee was consistently associated with a lower risk of mortality from all causes of cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease and stroke. A UK biobank study in 2018 found coffee drinkers live longer. So how much should I be drinking? Most studies suggest that around three or four cups a day produce maximum benefit. Any more and you get no further benefits. Are there downsides? Not sleeping? And lack of sleep has been linked to numerous other health issues. If your coffee consumption keeps you awake at night, best to keep it to the early part of the day. What if I'm pregnant? Ah, well now, in that case it will be zero coffee for you. A paper published in the BMJ Evidence Journal 
advises pregnant women to cut out caffeine to help prevent miscarriage, low birth weight and stillbirths. Sorry mums. Any other coffee related health tips? Hold the sugar. Possibly the cream too. This article was by Vicky Allen, Senior Futures Writer. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 23rd of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Maggie Ritchie's novel was inspired by a bright-eyed self-portrait of Eleanor Allen Moore by Jan Patience, arts writer. Daisy Chain. Maggie Ritchie. Two Roads, £16.99. Review by Jan Patience. As she showed in her debut novel, Paris Kiss, Glasgow-based author Maggie Ritchie writes with ease about female friendship as women move through the vicissitudes of life. Like her first novel, Ritchie's third book, Daisy Chain, revolves around the lives and loves of two unlikely friends, making their way in male-dominated worlds. In this novel, our two heroines are both Scottish, having spent their early years in Kirkudbury and Dumfries and Galloway. Lily Crawford is an inspiring artist and the only child of the local doctor and his amateur artist wife, while Jeannie Taylor is the eldest child of a single mother of a band of children. Jeannie's saving grace, and one which offers a potential escape from poverty, is that she has been taught ballet by Tatiana, wife of a local tinker and one-time prima ballerina with a leading Russian ballet company. The action begins and ends in the artist town of Kirkudbury, travelling via Glasgow and Shanghai over the course of nearly 30 years. We're introduced to our heroines' respective characters as young girls in Kirkudbury in 1901. Ritchie paints a vivid picture of two bright, inquisitive wee girls weaving a daisy chain in the late afternoon heat of a summer's day. Their knockabout chatter is suddenly interrupted by the mischievous genie turning cartwheels before settling into a series of ballet poses. The pair dream about their future lives as they lark around. Tell me again where we'll live when we're grown women, genie asks Lily. In my studio in Glasgow, Lily replies. Weaving fact and fiction together in the first of several cameos by well-known artists, brackets not always named, close brackets, the girls realise they are being watched by the artist from the pink house in the high street. Before they race down the hill, Jeannie complains he hasn't paid her the penny he promised for painting her and her wee sisters down by the burn. The artist is Glasgow boy E.A. Hornell, famous for his idealised and highly decorative paintings of children at play. As Richie explains in a historical note at the end of the book, which is subtitled, A Novel of the Glasgow Girls, the plot was inspired by the eventful lives of a group active in the first few decades of the 20th century known as the Glasgow Girls. The pioneering work of these students and teachers at the Glasgow School of Art, GSA, which included Charles Rennie Mackintosh's wife Margaret MacDonald and her sister Frances, was recognised and celebrated in its day. Gradually though, the girls' names faded from art history books. After seeing an exhibition about the Glasgow Girls in GSA's subsequently fire-ravaged Macintosh building, the Mac, in 2010, Ritchie became intrigued by a bright-eyed self-portrait of Eleanor Allen Moore. Moore's life took her from a childhood in Kilmarnock to art school in Glasgow and on to Shanghai in China with her doctor husband and their daughter. She lit the spark which led Ritchie to create the character of Lily. Maggie Ritchie's background as a journalist gives her a head start when it comes to delving into characters' heads and keeping readers engaged with short, sharp chapters which keep the action rolling along. 
Although I enjoyed her descriptions of artsy Glasgow in the heady days before the First World War, for me the novel came alive when the narrative moved to Shanghai. Ritchie received a Society of Authors grant to travel in Moore's footsteps, and you can almost smell the hot, fetid air of the so-called Paris of the East, as Lily navigates her way around the city. Not to mention life as a young wife and mother whose troubled husband hides a dark secret. It's female friendship, not love which conquers all for likeable Lily and straight-talking Jeannie in this evocative and highly readable novel. By Jan Patience. The Herald, Thursday the 24th of June 2021. News. Appeal to raise car tax to subsidise public transport to hit climate targets. This article is by David Ball. Ministers have been urged to ramp up road tax for car owners to tally up funding to subsidise public transport as part of a flurry of recommendations to tackle the climate emergency. Scotland's Climate Assembly has published 81 recommendations for Scottish ministers to consider adopting in their strategy to become carbon net zero by 2045. Meanwhile, in a new report published today, the Scottish Government has been told by its statutory adviser, the Climate Change Committee, CCC, to scale up delivery across all sectors in line with the ambition set out by ministers, including the need to publish a strategy setting out how its ambitious target of cutting car kilometres by 20% by 2030 will be achieved. The Climate Assembly is a mini-Scotland with more than 100 members broadly representative of the population and operates independently of the Scottish Government. The Assembly's recommendations carry weight as ministers must publish a statement outlining how they will respond within six months. The Assembly has called for a move away from public car use and more emphasis put on public transport. Ministers have been told to phase in increased road taxes for private car use and use the revenue to subsidise public transport, while efforts should be focused on making public transport cheaper or even free of charge by reviewing tender processes to focus government subsidies into nationalised public-private partnerships or not-for-profit public transport providers. The Assembly also wants ministers to commit to working to decarbonise all internal flights within Scotland by 2025 and place rail travel at the core of an integrated transport system by subsidising rail infrastructure to make it more affordable and resilient than air travel, particularly for mainland journeys in the UK. An Oyster card for Scotland should also be introduced as part of a joined-up transport policy under another recommendation. The Welsh Government has announced it is suspending all future road building plans to ensure its aim of becoming carbon neutral by 2050 is met. The Scottish Government has resisted calls to end investment in road projects. In order for the increased road tax plans to be brought forward, it would need the approval of the UK Government, which has stressed that revenue from motoring taxes will need to keep pace with the transition away from petrol and diesel vehicles to continue funding infrastructure projects. 
The Climate Assembly recommendations come as the CCC calls on the Scottish Government to back up commitments with more action, including setting out how it's pledged to cut road kilometres by 20% in the next nine years, will be achieved. Lord Debin, Chairman of the Climate Change Committee, has warned that the government must get real on delivery. He added, Global Britain has to prove that it can lead a global change in how we treat our planet. Get it right and UK action will echo widely. Continue to be slow and timid and the opportunity will slip from our hands. Between now and COP26, the world will be looking for delivery, not promises. Fabrice Levesque, Head of Policy at WWF Scotland, added that delivery of emission reductions by Scottish Government policies falls short of our targets. He added, With the eyes of the world on Glasgow in November at COP26, the Scottish Government must get its own house in order domestically if we're to play our part in keeping global warming below 1.5C. The only way to do this is to bring forward the ambitious new policies that will deliver the urgent change needed. Other recommendations by the Climate Assembly include plans for a national nature service aimed at creating jobs in rewilding and environmental protection, enhanced training and opportunities in green jobs, and a programme of public education on climate issues. Another recommendation made to ministers is to retrofit all existing homes by 2030 with all new buildings to be required to meet high energy efficient passhouse standards. Professor Dave Rie, Chair in Carbon Management and Education and Executive Director of the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute, said the recommendations were a clarion call for climate action right across Scotland. He added, for anyone who was still wondering what needs done on climate change, it's writ large here, much more and much faster. These recommendations span every part of our lives, from heating our homes and the daily commute, through to what we buy and what we eat. In these times of COVID, the call for more climate education, green skills and job opportunities is an especially powerful one. As a nation, if we can get anywhere near the same levels of climate understanding, passion and commitment to action shown by the Assembly members, then Scotland really can punch well above our weight in the global fight against climate change. Net Zero Secretary Michael Matheson said the transition to net zero must be a shared national endeavour. He added, it is clear that Assembly members have taken great care to develop ambitious proposals and recommendations to provide support for the societal transformation we know will be needed for Scotland to become a net zero nation. We will take the necessary time to reflect fully on the Assembly's recommendations before providing a comprehensive and cross-government response in line with the requirements of the Climate Change Scotland Act. In this year of COP26, Scotland's Climate Assembly exemplifies how we are putting people at the heart of policy making by consulting, engaging and involving citizens in decision making. The journey to net zero 
will transform every aspect of our lives and presents huge potential for us to seize the opportunities that becoming a net zero society presents for this and future generations. But the Scottish Conservatives have pointed to the failure of the Scottish Government to meet its own climate targets for the last three years in a row. The party's energy, net zero and transport spokesperson Liam Kerr said the SNP's promises on climate change simply don't match the reality. Only last week we saw that they had once again missed key emission targets. It is little wonder that those participating in Scotland's Climate Assembly came to the conclusion that ministers need to move far faster to tackle the climate emergency. He added, the SNP have failed to back up their words with meaningful policies that will actually help to achieve net zero emissions. However, while everyone recognises the need to urgently tackle the climate emergency, policies cannot unfairly punish people for simply having a car. In many parts of Scotland, having a car is absolutely essential. The SNP will have to do far better when it comes to finding ways to reduce emissions while not hammering hard-working Scots. SNP ministers must ensure that the right balance is struck when ultimately deciding how to act upon the Climate Assembly's recommendations. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Thursday the 24th of June 2021. News. Covid Scotland. Euro 2020 gatherings blamed for surge in COVID cases among men. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Fans gathering indoors to watch Euro 2020 have been blamed for a surging COVID-19 gender gap after case numbers in Scotland reached record levels. Figures released yesterday showed 2,969 cases were confirmed in the past 24 hours, eclipsing the 2,649 cases recorded during the peak of the winter second wave. In recent days, about two-thirds of cases among people aged 15 to 44 have been men. The unprecedented spike has coincided with the Euros football tournament, with Glasgow hosting matches as well as an outdoor fan zone for up to 6,000 supporters a day. Moscow has closed down its football fan zone after Russia, which is hosting matches, saw a 30% increase in cases in the past week. Since June the 21st, 918 men in Scotland have had positive tests, compared with 426 women in the 25 to 44 age range. For those in their early 20s, the divergence is even more pronounced with 765 men and 240 women. Professor Stephen Reicher, an expert on behavioural psychology at the University of St Andrews, believes it is linked to men gathering indoors to watch games. He told the Times, A few weeks ago it was about 50-50. Men and women got infected at the same rate, he told BBC Radio Scotland. Yesterday, the data showed that young men under 45 were about three times more likely to get infected. We can't be sure why that is, but the obvious explanation is that people were getting together for the football and not taking precautions. Alison Pollock, 
public health expert and director of the Newcastle University Centre for Excellence in Regulatory Science, said multiple factors could be involved, including men testing themselves before attending football events. The number of cases has risen by almost 40% since Monday. Five deaths were also recorded yesterday, the highest daily total since April. However, the number of people in hospital with COVID fell by 1 to 171, while the number in intensive care remained unchanged at 18, a fraction of what it was during the winter peak. Nicola Sturgeon warned that the surge could still put huge pressure on the NHS. Writing on Twitter, she said if restrictions were to end on August the 9th, we should take this increase seriously. The First Minister said vaccines were breaking the link between illness and death and around 5% of cases are admitted to hospital now, but added that 5% of a large number of cases will still put huge pressure on NHS and cause suffering and loss. Professor Devi Sridhar, an advisor on COVID to the Scottish Government, added, Obviously, caution is needed, but the most important marker is whether the link between cases and moderate to severe disease is being broken. This is a different wave than previous ones. We are in new territory. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Recorded from the Herald on the 24th of June 2021. From the sports section, SFA chief on Billy Gilmer's positive COVID-19 test, Ben Chilwell and Mason Mountchat and Scotland's Protocols by Matthew Lindsay. Ian Maxwell, the Scottish FA Chief Executive, has defended the COVID-19 safeguards that Scotland had in place for Euro 2020 in the wake of the national team's exit from the finals. Billy Gilmore, the Chelsea midfielder who was named Man of the Match after the 0-0 draw with joint favourites England at Wembley on Friday night, tested positive for coronavirus on Monday. The 20-year-old was ordered to self-isolate for 10 days at the Scotland Hotel outside Darlington and missed the group final Group D match against Croatia at Hampden on Tuesday night. Steve Clark's men, who needed to beat the Russia 2018 finalists to qualify for the knockout rounds of a major tournament for the first time in their history, lost 3-1 and finished bottom of their section. John Fleck also contracted the virus during the pre-tournament training camp in Spain earlier this month and missed a friendly against the Netherlands in Portugal, along with six players who had been in close contact with him. However, Maxwell yesterday insisted SFA medical staff had adhered to strict UEFA protocols and taken every possible precaution both during the build-up to the finals and in the tournament itself. When Billy had his positive result, everyone looks at it and thinks, how can that happen, he said. But look at his movements just as part of his involvement with the team. He is in a hotel in Middlesbrough on Thursday. He is then on a bus, a plane, another bus, another hotel and into a stadium and onto another bus, another plane and so on. That's the difficulty of coronavirus. It really doesn't need very much at all, and you can contract it purely from touching the wrong thing at the wrong time. It's so difficult to manage. Maxwell added, We are well versed in the protocols, we know exactly what the risks are, and we have kept the players as secure as we can with a virus which is so difficult to manage. Covid is still in our midst, you only have to look at the increased numbers reported yesterday. In these situations, you first have to think of the players, and wish them a safe and speedy return, because in sport, we lose sight of the impact the virus has on people. We followed strict UEFA protocols throughout the tournament, and we are thankful that we have Dr John McLean, 
who has led Scottish football's COVID protocol implementation from a medical perspective as the national team doctor. England decided to put Ben Chilwell and Mason Mount, who had spent 20 minutes talking to their Chelsea teammate Gilmore in the tunnel after the game at Wembley, into quarantine on Monday. Asked if Gilmore should have spent so long with Chilwell and Mount, Maxwell said, Everyone needs to be aware of the risks, and throughout society there are reminders of the need to be extra vigilant and ultra-cautious, even in a tested bubble. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 24th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. 1971. Pop's Best Year? Issue of the Day by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Joni Mitchell's fourth album, The Much Lauded Blue, celebrated its 50th anniversary this week. It comes amidst a move to elevate 1971, the year it was released, as the greatest year in popular music. Its acclaim advanced in Asif Kapadia's recent music documentary, 1971, The Year That Music Changed Everything, which was inspired by David Hepworth's book, 1971, Never a Dull Moment. Hold on, 1971? The year Benny Hill got to number one with Ernie, brackets the fastest milkman in the West, close brackets. That was the greatest year for pop music, the year of Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by Middle of the Road. Pull the other one. I believe this is what one might call selective memory, and you forgot to mention Lobo's Me and You and A Dog Called Boo. Exactly, so what's the argument? Well, the theory goes that 1971 saw the release of some of the most memorable and musically sophisticated albums in the history of pop. In his book, Hepworth argues that this was the most febrile and creative time in the entire history of popular music. He has also said it was the last moment in pop history when musicians were not self-conscious about what they were doing. Okay, where's the evidence then? It's in the albums released that year. They include Marvin Gaye's Motown classic What's Going On, which came out in May 1971, a month before Blue. Having mentioned those two, you could drop the mic and walk away. But 1971 also saw the release of Deep Breath, Carol King's Tapestry, David Bowie's Hunky Dory, Nick Drake's Brighter Later, Sticky Fingers by The Stones, The Who's Who's Next, Ellie Woman by The Doors, Al Green Gets Next to You, Funkadelic's Maggot Brain and Sly and the Family Stones There's a Riot Going On. Issue of the Day has been listening to T-Rex's Electric Warrior whilst typing this. Oh, and we didn't mention Led Zeppelin 4. Brackets, but then some of us can't stand Stairway to Heaven, so that could go either way, close brackets. Fair enough, it's a decent list, and I have been hearing a lot about Joni Mitchell's Blue of late. Yes, maybe you caught the Radio 4 documentary in the album presented by Laura Marling. Mitchell is a special talent, one whose honest and openness in Blue expanded what pop music could talk about. As the New York Times noted of Blue this week, it is the work of a restless young woman questioning everything. So be saying it's done and dusted, that 1971 is the high point of pop? Well, where would the fun be in that? It's always up for debate. You could make a very good case for 1965. Rubber Soul, Highway 61 Revisited, Otis Blue, A Love Supreme. 1979, Off the Wall, Tusk, Armed Forces, Unknown Pleasures, Eat to the Beat. 1985, Hounds of Love, Psycho Candy, Steve McQueen, don't Stand Me Down, or any other year that you happen to be a teenager in. That's usually the key to your favourite music after all, the age when you first heard it. By Teddy Jameson. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 24th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Music Review. RSNO stroke Sondergaard 
at Glasgow Royal Concert Hall by Mark Eady. Music, RSNO, Stroke Sondergaard, Glasgow Royal Concert Hall, Keith Bruce, Five Stars. The theatrical convention of orchestral concerts has the musicians on stage stand as their conductor appears from the wings to bow to his audience before the first work on the programme. At Glasgow Royal Concert Hall on Saturday evening, it really felt as if the fortunate few there to listen should also have leapt to their feet to greet the RSNO's music director, Thomas Sondergaard. Social distancing restrictions limited the capacity of Glasgow's big hall to a mere 100 masked ticket holders scattered around the outer reaches of the auditorium, while the players occupied an extended platform. A full-strength symphony orchestra would nearly have outnumbered them, but Sondergaard was directing a smaller ensemble that began with 25 musicians and never exceeded 40. There was no sense, however, that this was anything less than a momentous occasion. After more than 15 months of prohibition as a result of the pandemic, live music was back with a concert hall that had been hastily added to the National Orchestra's inventive season of online performances. This in-person coda marked the closing of the orchestral year, with the RSNO's next appearance being a major role in August's Edinburgh International Festival, but the performance put an important marker down. RSNO Live, Welcome Back, read the top line of the programme. The musicians may have been a small band, but it was an A-team, with the section principals all in their places for a programme of vivacious 20th century French music that gave each of them a chance to show their skill and seemed designed to induce ear-to-ear -ear grins beneath the face coverings of their audience. Principal oboe Adrian Wilson had the most prominent role as soloist in Jean-Francex's L'Horloge de Floret, The Floral Clock, an oboe concerto by one of Nadia Boulanger's star pupils that bursts with melodies and cleverly orchestrated indications of the mechanism of the timepiece from the other winds and pizzicato strings. It sat between works between Ebert and Poulenc that might struggle to find a home in regular concerts, but were absolutely perfect in the context of this 75-minute concert. Jacques Ebert's Divertissement began life as incidental music for a theatrical farce and remains full of humour, poking fun at Mendelssohn's Wedding March and Strauss's Blue Danube as it dashes around like the soundtrack to some unseen animated film. Huge discordant piano splashes and a very apt referee's whistle signal the end of the picturesque frivolity. Francis Poulenc's Sinfonietta shares some of the same melodic language in more sober fashion and whets the appetite for larger symphonic works that Poulenc never actually wrote. Brilliant rhythmic variations lead the way into the narrative of the work, with every section of the orchestra and many solo voices taking the lead in turn. That work and the whole programme seem designed to display the riches of live orchestral music that we have been denied. On a weekend with other distractions, the musicians were not explicitly questioning the priorities of Philistine governments in Westminster and Holyrood, but their eloquence was bound to make those who heard them wonder why sporting events are deemed to be so much more essential than artistic ones. By Mark Ede. The Herald, Friday the 25th of June 2021. News. Brewdog. Boss cancels Aberdeen TED Talk after toxic work culture claims. This article is by Sarah Pacirioni. 
BrewDog's president has withdrawn from a prominent conference after a group of ex-employees signed an open letter exposing the toxic work culture at the company earlier this month. David McDowell, president and chief operating officer of the Ellen's Brewery, has pulled out from a TED talk TEDx Aberdeen has announced. The organisation tweeted, Dave McDowell, president and COO of BrewDog, has withdrawn as a speaker at TEDx Aberdeen. In light of allegations raised by open letter from ex-employees, Dave is focusing his energies with his team at this time. Mr McDowell was due to speak of BrewDog's successes, drawing on the theme David beating Goliath on July 31st. The TEDx Aberdeen tweet was sent in response to another post by Barr Davison Stories, a Twitter account created to share stories from BrewDog's former employees who were victims of harmful practices at the firm. The group called for Mr McDowell's withdrawal from the talk, sharing a 2013 Guardian article about a Glasgow club investigated for secretly installing a two-way mirror allowing male guests to spy on the women's toilets. Mr McDowell has been a director at G1 Group PLC, which owned the club at the time, before joining the beer company in 2015. The tweet read, Hi at TEDx, are you happy with the man responsible for this and a succession of disgusting practices that we're about to expose throughout his subsequent employment at BrewDog being on your bill in Aberdeen next month? A spokesperson for the Bar Division Stories told the Herald, We're pleased that his appalling behaviour is finally catching up with him and will make sure that his actions at BrewDog are also brought to the public's attention. I'm fairly sure our tweet was a contributory factor in his withdrawal. They added, The Twitter page came from the huge amounts of BrewDog bar-specific stories we've been receiving and our own experiences of working under these people. We want to hold them to account and drive positive change in a deeply flawed operation led by some of the worst people in the industry. The announcement was retweeted by Punks with Purpose, the group behind the open letter. They wrote, We're pleased to see signs that BrewDog's senior management are stepping away from PR engagements to focus on getting their house in order. We're looking forward to meaningful changes happening soon. Founder James Watt had apologised for the detrimental work environment at the company, which ex-employees said created a residual feeling of fear, admitting this was 100% my fault. The company had also been accused of vanity project campaigns, which were not reflected in practice. The firm's recent climate drive while allegedly making use of a private jet. Mr Watt said the brewery will launch a review of all its departments to ensure positive and inclusive change at all levels. BrewDog has confirmed Mr McDowell will be stepping back from public engagements to focus his energy on the BrewDog team and the work that is underway on our internal culture. TEDx Aberdeen has been contacted for comment. This article is by Sarah Pacchiarioni. The Herald, Friday the 25th of June 2021, News. GB News, Andrew Neil takes break from presenting duties after just two weeks. This article is by Jack Aitchison. 
GB News boss Andrew Neil is taking a break from presenting the channel just two weeks after launching it. The broadcaster, 72, has been a permanent fixture on the controversial network since it launched on June the 13th. However, he confirmed last night that he'd be taking some time off presenting, with Colin Brazier stepping in for him. On closing his self-titled news show last night, Neil said, That's it for tonight and from me for the next few weeks, but I leave you in the safe and professional hands of Colin Brazier. GB News has been mocked online over technical issues and set quality, with the channel being marred with sound and visual problems over the initial few days. Handing over to Tonight with Dan Wooten, Neil accepted the rocky start, thanking viewers for their commitment and promised a return to presenting. He said, I'll be back before the summer is out and when you least expect it, so stay tuned. But before I take this break, let me say this, he continued. Yes, we had a bit of a rocky start with the launch of GB News. We're a startup. They're always a bit rocky, these startups. But we are up and running, as you can see. We get better every day and there's clearly an appetite for what we're doing. And in two short weeks, we've already built a loyal audience, which has beaten all of our expectations. It's often bigger than the other news channels and it's growing. That's the real story about GB News to date, and you won't often read that in the papers. So on behalf of GB News, I say to all of our viewers, thank you. We won't let you down, and you ain't seen nothing yet. This article is by Jack Aitchison. Friday, the 25th of June, 2021. The Herald Scotland, Sports Section. Shelley Kerr. Euro 2020 showing proved Scotland have resilience. Like all Scotland fans, I'm naturally disappointed that our Euro 2020 adventure has come to an end without us making it out of the group stage. But I still feel positive about the future and believe this group of young players can hopefully go on to achieve so much more. Everyone has had an opinion following the defeat to Croatia on Tuesday night. Steve Clark and his players have come in for some criticism for not getting result we won needed. I think some of it has been unfair. It's easy for anyone sitting at home on their armchairs and sofas to say what they would have done in Steve's shoes. As a former player and manager, I've tried to reflect on it more pragmatically. We were the lowest ranked team in our group, which was maybe forgotten amid all the hype. Having finally qualified after 23 years and then having done so well at Wembley, there was maybe a heightened sense of expectation about what should be expected from the Scotland squad. Steve has said he wanted to be competitive throughout the tournament and the team undoubtedly were. I just feel that in the two games against the Czechs and Croatia, the opposition were better. It's as simple as that, that sometimes in sport, People will talk about selection and tactics, but for me, it's a clash between perception and reality. The Czech Republic had better quality on the day, and the Croatia team, they had better players and were also just better on the day. We have to be realistic as a country. I read articles and watch a lot of their reaction, and I don't think we should be getting too ahead of ourselves. We acquitted ourselves well. 
created good chances against three dangerous teams, but it just wasn't to be. The other sides just had that extra bit of quality where it matters that we were lacking. It was a tough group, and with the two games being at Hamden, everyone expected us to do well because of home advantage. Sometimes that just heaps extra pressure on you. But what was refreshing for me and gives me optimism for the future was the way Andy Robertson, Cal McGregor and John McGinn spoke in the immediate aftermath of the Croatia game. Emotions often run high right after a match, but the three of them were so honest in the reflection of where they're at at team. That's a way that you learn. They didn't start to blame others or look for excuses. They just simply recognised that they had been beaten by a better team and vowed to learn from it. That, for me, was a true reflection on how Scotland performed at that tournament, and I have to pay the players massive credit for that, as that's not an easy thing to do as a player. Self-awareness is everything when you're looking for improvement, and I think the experience of just being at a major finals will have helped Steve and all his players looking forward. They now know what's required for tournament football, and that you can't just peak for one game. That was really evident, and they will learn from that. And sometimes, when things don't go your way, that's when you really learn and improve, as often when you have success, you just accept it without really analysing it. When you go through suffering and disappointment, then having that awareness about the circumstances definitely helps you become better. In Scotland, we talk about developing players over four pillars, technical, tactical, physical and psychological. There's provision in place for those first three pillars, but we do very little in the psychological area at times. And that's something the best athletes study in huge detail, as understanding psych and sport is huge. This is your young squad and they've now been exposed to this experience. That will stand them in good stead. We've seen the emergence of Billy Gilmore and Nathan Patterson, with David Turnbull in the squad too. I'd expect all three will stay part of Steve's plans going forward as we move towards the next challenge. We need more coming through now to provide that blend you need alongside seasoned pros like Robertson and Kieran Tierney. We need more like them playing at the very top level on a more regular basis. Gilmore came into the team having not played that much for Chelsea last season and you want your players to be getting those experiences at club level on a more regular basis. We'll now resume our World Cup qualifying group and try to see if we can qualify again. There will be an expectation now on this group of players after ending that 23-year wait, but the challenge now is to try and sustain that over a longer period. And it's another tough group, with Denmark and Austria in there, and no playoff safety net. The thing that will stay with me most about the Euros is just the buzz it created all around the country for those three weeks. Being involved has lifted the whole nation. Even people who wouldn't normally watch games have been getting caught up in it. The results weren't what we expected or wanted, but we shouldn't forget the joy and excitement Steve and the team brought us this summer. They deserve a lot of credit for that.
Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 25th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Issue of the day. These Pacific words will probably irk you. By Maureen Sugden, reporter. This list of words gone wrong is probably the most annoying thing you're going to read today, but here it is, specially for you, with a reminder of some of the most famous mispronunciations of recent times. Probably? Sorry, it's just that a new survey has compiled a top 10 list of the most irritatingly mispronounced words and people saying probably, rather than probably, is right up there in the top 3. What's in the top spot? The mispronunciation of specifically as pacifically was found to be the most annoying of all, with 35% of those spoken to saying it irritated them immensely. Probably was in second place at 28% and expresso rather than espresso was in third place with 26% saying the mangled version irked them. Especially for you. Of the 2,000 participants surveyed by London-based insights agency Prospectus Global, 25% said people saying specially when they mean especially is deeply annoying. Other words in the top 10. The mangling of Arctic to Arctic. Nuclear to nuclear, and tenterhooks to tenderhooks, all get a mention, as does etc. Being altered to etc, accessory to accessory, and triathlon to triathlon. Overall, even although 35% of people spoken to admitted correcting friends and family when they say the wrong thing, we're not so keen to correct others. Prospectus Global Creative Director Ellie Glasson said, It seems Brits are a nitpicking bunch when it comes to how others say things. However, interestingly, the research shows that in true British style, 65% are more likely to mutter under their breath than call someone out on it. It can happen to any one of us. At a rally in Montana in 2019, Donald Trump couldn't get to grips with Anonymous and changed it to an Anonymous. While Sherlock Holmes star Benedict Cumberbatch struggles to say penguins, in an issue highlighted during a 2014 Graham Norton interview, a documentary narrated by the actor was played back to much laughter as it revealed him repeatedly saying penguins. Nigella's microwave? Ah yes, a clip from culinary queen Nigella Lawson's show Cook, Eat, Repeat went viral online last year when she mispronounced microwave as microwave. One viewer tweeted, 2020 has thrown a lot of curveballs at us, but I was truly not expecting the way Nigella Lawson said microwave to be one of them. When asked for a comment, her team explained, in a nutshell, it's how Nigella refers to the microwave at home. The Queen knows the score. The decision by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to name their daughter Lilibet sparked headlines earlier this month. Lilibet was a nickname given to the Queen as a child when she was unable to pronounce her own full name, Elizabeth. It's now likely many children will be called Lilibet, following the trend set by the Sussexes, with experts predicting it will be in the top 10 of girls' names next year, showing that just what can happen to a mispronunciation over time. By Maureen Sugden. The Herald, Monday the 28th of June 2021, News. Electoral Commission reject every ballot paper slogan proposed by Alex Salmon's Alaba Party. This article is by Tom Gordon. Alex Salmon's Alaba Party has had all its official descriptions rejected by watchdogs. The Electoral Commission refused permission for seven proposed descriptions for use on ballot papers, as well as an emblem. Alaba, which was launched in late March, 
had already been stopped from using the slogans at the Holyrood election as it failed to apply before January 31st deadline. The Commission's ruling also means Alaba also cannot use the descriptions in their current form if it stands candidates at next year's council elections as it said it will. However, it can use the slogans on general election literature. The party said it had submitted fresh applications. In a roundup of recent decisions, the Commission said all seven proposed ballot paper slogans failed to meet the requirements of a description. The rejected slogans were Mandate for Independence, Get Independence Done, Make Independence Happen, The Supermajority, A Mandate for Independence, The Supermajority for Independence, First Vote Party, Second Vote Country, For the Independent Supermajority. The Commission also rejected Alaba's proposed emblem or identifying mark for use on ballot papers, a stylized St Andrew's cross above the word Alaba on the grounds it contains an unqualified prohibited word. The problem with the ballot paper slogans appears to be the omission of the name Alaba. According to Commission guidance, descriptions must allow voters to identify a party. If, in the Commission's opinion, a voter cannot identify the party from the description, it is not a description under election law and cannot be registered. Meanwhile, the emblem appears to have been rejected as it included the name Alaba. A long list of emblem-banned words include Scotland, Scots-Scottish, as well as Britain, British, England, English, National, United Kingdom, Wales and Welsh. All parties can register up to 12 descriptions for use on ballot papers and Alaba was not the only party standing in the Holyrood election to have its proposals rejected. The Scottish Greens also had a clean sweep of rejections with eight slogans referring to particular candidates in six regions and two seats turned down as likely to hinder an elector's understanding of directions for voting given on ballot papers. George Galloway's All for Unity party, which, like Alaba, stood on the regional lists alone, had two descriptions approved and two rejected. The rejects were All for Unity, George Galloway's team, and All for Unity, George Galloway's team, which were both deemed likely to mislead voters as to the effect of their vote. The Labour Party also had two descriptions rejected, Anis Sarwar, Labour's National Recovery Plan, and Anis Sarwar, Get Scotland Back Better. Both were considered likely to hinder an elector's understanding of directions for voting given on ballot papers. Alaba General Secretary Chris McElhenney said, Everything Alaba said in the election is coming to pass. We are the only party in Scotland campaigning for Scotland's independence, as is required with urgency and democratic determination. It was unfortunate that due to the timescales involved prior to the election that we were unable to have descriptions in our album approved. We have updated our registrations to the Electoral Commission and look forward to their decision. A Commission spokesperson said, All applications to register new party descriptions and emblems are subject to detailed assessments against the criteria set out in law. 
To be registered, a description must identify the party. That means where a description appears on a ballot paper. Voters must be able to recognise which party the candidate is standing for from the description used. The descriptions in question were refused because they did not identify the party. The proposed emblem was refused as the law prohibits the word Scotland and any translations of it, including Alaba, from appearing alone on an emblem without any additional qualifying words. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Herald, Monday the 28th of June 2021, News. Nicola Sturgeon gives unscheduled COVID statement as Scotland's cases at all-time high. This article is by Jack Aitchison. Nicola Sturgeon has urged people in Scotland to take extra precaution as the country records its highest ever number of daily cases. On Monday, it was revealed 3,285 people had reported positive tests overnight for COVID-19. This beats the previous record of 2,999 new cases on Thursday, which topped the largest number of 2,969 recorded on the previous day and a high of 2,649 on January the 7th. The daily test positivity rate is 12.6%, up from 8.9% the previous day, and is the highest figure since 14.8% was recorded on January the 8th. In an unscheduled update, the First Minister addressed the public amid a steep rise in cases, urging people to keep working together to avoid the virus running ahead of the vaccine. She said, We're seeing a steep rise in COVID cases in Scotland right now as we face the faster transmitting Delta strain of the virus. The good news is that vaccines are providing significant protection. We're not at this stage seeing a commensurate rise in the numbers of people in hospital or becoming seriously ill from the virus, but it's important that we are not complacent. No new deaths were recorded, meaning the toll under this daily measure of people who first tested positive for the virus within the previous 28 days remains at 7,712. A total of 202 people were in hospital on Sunday with recently confirmed COVID-19 with 20 patients in intensive care. So far, 3,765,379 people have received the first dose of a COVID-19 vaccination and 2,691,775 have received their second dose. Ms Sturgeon added, there are still many people who don't yet have both doses of the vaccine. We're going as fast as we can, but we still have a significant proportion of the population that is not fully vaccinated. So if we are to avoid the virus running ahead of the vaccine, it's really important that all of us take care and be cautious. So I'm asking everybody across Scotland at this crucial time as we look ahead hopefully to the finishing line to do all of the things that help slow the virus down. Make sure you are keeping at a safe distance from people in other households. Make sure you are washing your hands and surfaces regularly. Please wear your face coverings and stay outdoors if you are seeing people in other households as much as possible because that lowers the risk of transmission. 
So let's all keep working together to slow the virus down while we allow the vaccination programme to get ahead. That will get us safely to the end point if we all pull together for the next period. Thank you very much. This article is by Jack Aitchison. From the Herald Scotland, dated Monday 28th June 2021, from the Voices section. Could gratuities and service charges be the tipping point? An article by Doug Marr. It's probably a melange of an Abaddonian upbringing and my wife's unkind characterisation that I'm as tight as the submerged portion of a duck's anatomy. Whatever, I'm unrepentantly not a great believer in dining out. Last week, though, heritage and financial caution were cast aside to mark a special occasion at what was ominously described as an upmarket eatery. Caveat emptor. To be fair, the meal was good, and momentarily I thought there might be something in this eating out malarkey. Until the bill came, that is. I wasn't taken aback by the charges for the food and wine. 1963 O-grade arithmetic had prepared me for that. I was less ready for the extra 15 quid that appeared under service. Don't get me wrong, the waiter seemed a perfectly nice fellow. He got the order right and successfully delivered the food before it got cold. Nevertheless, £15 seemed on the precipitous side. As we made our exit, I feigned nonchalance and had a sleek review of the menu. And sure enough, in small print at the bottom were the dreaded words, service not included. I suppose the small print represented tacit agreement and as the service was satisfactory, I had no option but to take it on the chin and pay up. At least the imposition avoided agonising over how much to tip, thus sidestepping the possibility of erring on the side of munificence. As long as there are restaurants, arguments will persist about service charges, tips and the justification for either. It would be preferable and more transparent to have labour costs built into the prices shown on the menu. After all, Supermarkets don't hit customers at the till with the hidden 10 or 15% levies to pay their checkout operators and shelf fillers. Their costs are built into the price of what's on the shelves. It's exactly the same in restaurants. Staff pay can only come from menu prices, service charges or tips. One way or another, it's the customer who pays. Restauranters are correct in pointing out that earnings from service charges and tips are subject only to income tax. If added to the cost of food and drink, employees would be liable to further deductions for national insurance and pensions. But hey, that's not really my problem. Owners also argue that, as the vast majority of them operate the trunk system, tips and service charges are pulled, ensuring staff are not shortchanged. I get all that, but absorbing staff costs fully into menu prices would remove the unpredictability and irrationality of the tipping system. American research suggests decisions about how much to tip are not necessarily made on the quality of service, but on things such as whether the server is young or old, male or female, and even black or white. 
Furthermore, owners also benefit if staff are not dependent on the vagaries of the tipping system. Staff turnover is reduced, helping build the all-important rapport with clients and cutting training costs. Debating their respective merits of service charges and tips sidesteps the basic point of whether either is acceptable. Reliance on what amounts to charity to offset low wages is demeaning for staff and pressurises customers. The injustice of the practice has been taken to the extreme in the US, with a general expectation of a tip in the region of 20%. I recall a discussion with a young server in a New York restaurant who claimed she received very little payment from the owner, her income being largely reliant on diner's generosity or otherwise. It would take a pretty hard heart not to be generous in that situation. At times I have considered taking a stand against tipping. My resolve is rarely, if ever, carried into practice. I am consumed by guilt and worry that the waiter or waitress is a single parent with a family to support or a student working his or her way through college. The sense of guilt is reinforced by those credit card machines, unique to restaurants, that pose the question about leaving a gratuity. With the waiter hovering at your shoulder, it takes a bit of doing to enter no, or add what might be perceived as a derisory amount. Entering yes presents a further challenge for the unwary. There must have been many occasions when those challenged by technology or semi-inebriation, have entered an amount containing at least one too many zeros. Tipping also seems to be a selective exercise. Without being unduly mean, serving in restaurants may be physically demanding, but it isn't rocket science. In the tipping scene in the movie Reservoir Dogs, Mr Pink, played by Steve Buscemi, questions why he should tip the waitress, but not the worker in McDonald's. After all, they both work in food. He had a point. A great many low-paid NHS and care home staff also work long hours, doing even more important work, and don't expect to receive gratuities. In a similar vein, why is there an expectation that taxi drivers are tipped, but not bus and train drivers whose jobs carry much greater responsibility and accountability? The hospitality and service sectors have been particularly hit hard by COVID. Many restaurants will find it an uphill struggle to attract and retain both clients and staff. Taking a closer look at the tipping system might take a trick. Some might even wish to copy the menu in a Japanese restaurant in New York that states, following the custom in Japan, our staff are fully compensated by their salary. Therefore, gratuities are not accepted. If Scottish restaurants adopted a similar strategy, it might prove to be the tipping point in post-Covid recovery for the industry. This article was by Doug Marr. From the Herald Scotland dated Monday 28th June 2021 from the Voices section. The misguided help to die bill talks of dignity in death, yet we deny it to many in life. An article by Kevin McKenna. At Westminster earlier this month, a ripple of compassion disturbed the business of contempt. Dr Liam Fox, the former Defence Secretary, introduced a bill that would give parity of esteem to people with Down syndrome with other minority groups whenever they encountered the state's framework of care.
it would require schools, social care services, NHS providers and local authorities to meet the specific needs of people with this condition. If passed, the bill will stand as a rebuke against the iniquitous social orthodoxy implicit in the modern world's attitude to Down syndrome. When the condition is detected in prenatal babies, around 90% are aborted in what has become a sort of informal programme of eugenics by stealth. The implications for people with Downs who actually made it into the world are not exactly conducive to their sense of self-esteem. As Dr Fox was proposing his bill, the Scottish Parliament was moving in the opposite direction in terms of how we view infirmity and vulnerability. The introduction of a bill to legalise assisted dying by Liam MacArthur, the Liberal Democrat MSP for Orkney, is backed by a cross-party Holyrood steering group. The legislation it seeks to enact seems well-intentioned and sincere, and would provide terminally ill adults who are deemed to be of sound mind the right to an assisted death. Understandably, debate on this delicate issue has proceeded in an atmosphere of intense emotion. As such, some implicit dangers in how we begin to regard end-of-life choices for extremely vulnerable people are too easily overlooked as we get swept along by attitudes that seem compassionate. Without questioning the sincerity of this bill's most persistent proponents, to introduce it at this time seems to be entirely tone-deaf. Others might describe it as callous. Where have they been these last 15 months? In these Covid days, families all over the world have watched helplessly as their elderly relatives have succumbed in agony and alone to this disease. The most profoundly haunting images we have witnessed during this pale time have been of keening relatives trying to convey love through the walls of a care home to marooned and frightened parents and grandparents. During the pandemic, the value we have attached to providing kindness and comfort to those reaching the end of their lives has never seemed greater. Nor has the commitment and compassion of NHS and care home staff, who have given everything of themselves to keep frail and elderly people alive, and to provide them with a sprinkling of the love they'd otherwise be getting from their families. The law as it currently stands protects vulnerable people and their families from abuse and from exploitation by those who stand to benefit from an assisted killing. It also provides a degree of discretion for judges in those very few cases which might be regarded as in extremists. Only a tiny number of British citizens go abroad for assisted suicide, around 270 in 12 years. Making laws from numbers like these creates chilling precedents. It also fails to acknowledge the psychological pressure the state would inadvertently be applying on vulnerable people to end their lives as they imagine, or are encouraged to, that they have become an economic burden. This becomes a reality among those who suffer from depression, especially as a result of their illness. The long-term economic and psychological distress caused by Covid will endure for a generation and will disproportionately affect our most marginalised communities. The people who live in these places, more than those in more affluent areas, will feel added pressure to end their lives as health and social care budgets reduce in the years ahead. 
In these circumstances, sheer economic desperation will increase the likelihood of neglect and exploitation by some families at the very edge of their ability to cope. Inevitably, as we become desensitised to the effects of the new law, its most implacable advocates will seek ways to chisel at the initial safeguards. You can only imagine what their chief motivations will be in a time when the writ of raw capitalism roams free. There is a reason why most of the UK's largest disabled rights groups are opposed to any changes in the laws around assisted dying. They stem from their serious concerns, based on experience, that such a law will heighten prejudicial attitudes to disabled people and ramp up pressure on them to take their own lives. Much of this is rooted in naked financial imperatives. Many of those inclined to be persuaded by the arguments in favour of assisted suicide talk loosely about dignity in dying. Yet where is the dignity in this? Death is a messy, painful and unfair business, but a government moved by compassion and a duty to care for all of its citizens at all stages of their lives, good times and bad, would find the money and resources to alleviate suffering with well-funded palliative and mental health care. The desire to commit suicide reduces greatly when people are being provided with proper care that honours their physical and psychological needs. It's ironic that when it comes to dignity in death, the eagerness to confer it outstrips our enthusiasm for providing it in life. Not so much time is spent discussing our duty of care to the many in our poorest communities who are stripped of dignity from the outset of their lives. Instead, in Scotland, more of them than any other country in Europe die of drug misuse. They are at the wrong end of the early mortality numbers. Long-term unemployment, lack of social housing and the scarcity of food and warmth will come to define their lives. Our political classes, through an absence of will and fear of electoral defeat, have failed to prevent capitalism preying on them with their zero-hours contracts and barely subsistent wages. What's being proposed here is merely an artifice for our political elites to divest themselves of any responsibility to fund proper care packages by choosing the nuclear option. Let them die instead. So please, spare me your lofty appeals to dignity in death when so many of our citizens are denied it in their wretched lives. This article was by Kevin McKenna. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 28th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments Sir Sean Connery, The Best Bond Ever, Despite Being Scottish, by Robert McNeil, columnist. Sean Connery was the best Bond. 99 out of 100 women will tell you that. Most men would agree. Maybe he was even the best Scot of recent times. Alright, stop greeting. All yous who'd nominate someone else and have a grievance about his pro-independence political views. For no one can deny that in 2004 Sir Sean was deemed greatest living Scot in a poll for that Sunday Herald. In 2011, a Euromillion survey found him to be Scotland's greatest living national treasure. Even after a tragic diagnosis of chronic baldness, People magazine described him as the sexiest man alive in 1989, when he was 60, while in 1999 he was officially found to have been the sexiest man of the century. So he'd something going for him, some things indeed, for he was not just a body or a coupon. 
in a handy development, he could also act, and above all, he had presence, which in lesser people is often notable for its absence. Above all, Connery, who died last year in yonder Bahamas, aged 90, showed what Scots from poor backgrounds could achieve if they worked hard. Born Thomas Sean Connery in 1930 in Edinburgh, he was raised in the city's Fountain Bridge, a place of breweries, meat markets and rubber works. His boulevard was dubbed the Street of a Thousand Smells. In the family's two-roomed flat, young Thomas slept in a drawer. His father worked in the rubber factory and as a lorry driver. His mother was a laundress. Two of his paternal great-grandparents had emigrated to Scotland from Wexford, Ireland. The rest of his family were from Fife and Skye. His father was of Catholic background, his mother Protestant. At school he was known for prowess at mathematics, reading any comic he could get his hands on and battering any bullies he could get his hands on. Called Tommy as a wee boy, that stopped when he reached 6 foot 2 and became known as Big Tam. He lost his virginity age 14 to a woman wearing an auxiliary territorial service uniform. His first job age 14 was as a milkman with St Cuthbert's Cooperative Society, brackets just like my granddad, whose horse booted him in the napper and killed him, close brackets. Like most Edinburgh men, my dad claimed to have known Tam, at least by sight, during the milk round days. Come to think of it, I delivered milk myself from a cart for St Cuthbert's when I was a boy. This is getting spooky. That said, I didn't join the Royal Navy in 1946 at the age of 16, during which stint Tam acquired two tattoos, Mum and Dad, and more controversially, Scotland Forever. Brackets note to foreign readers, many Scots have tattoos saying Scotland never, close brackets. Discharged from the Navy at 19 because of a duodenal ulcer, brackets, I had one of these too, not nice, close brackets. He went back to the co-op for a bit and also had stints as lorry driver, lifeguard, labourer, artist model and coffin polisher. He also shone at football with Matt Busby offering him a contract at Manchester United, which he turned down as he felt it too short a career at a time when players earned bobbies. By now he was entering bodybuilding competitions and during one such in London in 1951 someone mentioned they were looking for extras for a production of South Pacific. Tam got a gig as a chorus boy. I didn't have a voice, couldn't dance he later recalled, but I could look good standing there. Soon he was promoted to a proper role and began calling himself Sean as it reminded him of the movie Cowboy Shane. Minor roles in movies and TV followed as well as a big part in a film about leprechauns. Around this time he was urged to take elocution lessons as a Scottish accent is the hardest in the world to understand and a bit common to boot. Indeed his unpleasant Scottishness nearly did him in when he was offered the role of Bond as Ian Fleming, the character's creator, thought it made the character unrefined. Fleming also didn't like his looks, an overgrown stuntman. However, the top snob's girlfriend, along with producer Albert Cubby Broccoli's wife, liked Connery for some peculiar reason and, after the success of Dr No, Fleming himself changed his mind and subsequently gave Bond a Scottish heritage, though not as an Edinburgh milkman. Director Terence Young showed Sean how to walk, talk and even eat, activities that were not then widely practised in Scotland. In the films, he often wore evening dress as he ordered a vodka martini, brackets shaking about, no stirred, Ken, cut. Close brackets, and of course he was given great lines. Bond, James Bond. Quoth he, introducing himself while lighting a fag in a casino. Hate to say it, but folks forget how sexy cigarettes were. In the end, the rogue with the brogue made seven Bond films, but ultimately found the role had become a bit of a bore, and like all actors, he didn't want to be known for just one role. But like all actors, he pretty much is. 
Ach, that's not really true. He had great roles in The Man Who Would Be King, A Bridge Too Far, Highlander, The Name of the Rose, The Untouchables, brackets, for which he won an Oscar, close brackets, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Hunt for Red October. He was a passionate advocate of Scotland running its own affairs, and consequently was despised by some Scots. Connery was knighted in 2000 after two previous nominations had been vetoed by a Scottish Labour leader. Which one? Dewar, Donald Dewar, here in the role of Dr No, cancelling Connery before cancelling was a thing. Not everything about Connery was admirable. The affected lift, the golf, the questionable attitude to women, turning down a part in the Lord of the Rings, but we're nipping at a giant here, a handsome, strong, confident, talented giant who never let being Scottish become a handicap. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. By Robert McNeil. Recorded from the Herald on the 29th of June 2021. From the Sports Section. Rangers striker set for SFA hearing this week over homophobic language. By Ian Cullen. Rangers youngster Chris McKee faces a Scottish FA hearing on Thursday following his red card during Brecon City's pyramid playoff defeat to Kelty Hearts. The on-loan striker was sent off by referee Craig Napier in the first half of Brecon's 3-1 aggregate loss, with it later confirmed he'd been accused of using foul and abusive language of homophobic nature. The 19-year-old was said to be distraught and crying so much after the tie that he couldn't get his words out, according to then City Manager Michael Payton. Rangers vowed to investigate the incident thoroughly and insisted it would be treated with the utmost seriousness. McKee has been charged with breaching disciplinary rule 202 by committing excessive misconduct, an offence that carries a minimum punishment of a two-match suspension and a top-end ban of 12 games. The Northern Irishman is expected to hear his fate following the principal hearing on July 1st. That article was by Ian Cullen. Recorded from the Herald on the 29th of June 2021. From the Sports section. Scots part of Team GB for Tokyo Olympics includes Laura Muir, Eilish McCogan and Gemma Riki by Mark Hendry. Ten Scots have been picked to represent Team GB at this summer's Tokyo Olympics. Multiple medalist Laura Muir joins the likes of Edinburgh's Beth Dobbin, Gemma Riki and Eilish McCogan as the female representatives at the competition. Meanwhile, Josh Kerr and Jake Whiteman are among the men's contingent for Tokyo 2020. Dobin, competing in their first games, will take her place in the 200 metres alongside Dina Asher-Smith, as well as in the 4 by 100 metre relay. Muir and Rike will both participate in the 800 metres, while the former also takes part in the 1500 metre. The 10 athletes joined fellow Scott Kirsty Gilmore, Badminton, already announced as part of the Games. Team GB chef de mission for Tokyo Olympic Games, Mark England, said, I am extremely excited by this team of athletes and would like to congratulate them all on their selection to Team GB for the Tokyo Olympic Games. There were some stellar performances at the British Championships in Manchester this weekend, which will have undoubtedly given fans a glimpse of what they can expect to see when these athletes step out onto the world stage in Tokyo. Athletics is always such a spectacle at any Olympic Games, and we know that this year will be no different. The Games are, n- are within touching distance now, and adding a further 65 athletes to Team GB is a significant milestone on this journey. We wish all those selected today the very best in their final preparations 
and look forward to welcoming them to Tokyo next month. 200 meters, Dina Asher-Smith, John Blackie, Blackheath and Bromley. Beth Dobbin, Leon Baptist, Edinburgh. 800 meters, Keely Hodgkinson, Trevor Painter, Lee. Laura Muir, Andy Young, Dundee Hockill. Gemma Ricci, Andy Young, Kilbarkin. 1500 meter, Laura Muir, Andy Young, Dundee Hockhill. Katie Snowden, Dan Stepney, Hearn Hill. 5000 meters, Jess Judd, Mick Judd, Blackburn. Amy Eloise Markov, Chris Fox, Wakefield. Eilish McCogan, Liz Nuttall, Dundee Hockhill. 10,000 metres, Jess Judd, Mick Judd, Blackburn. Eilish McCulgan, Liz Nuttall, Dundee Hockhill. 4 by 100 metre relay, Dina Asher-Smith, John Blackie, Blackheath and Bromley. Beth Doden, Leon Baptist, Edinburgh. Amani Lara, Lansigot. Steve Fudge, Sutton and District. Daryl Neaty, Rana Reader, Cambridge. Ashley Nelson, Michael Afilka, City of Stoke. Asha Phillip, Steve Fudge, Newham and Essex Beagles. Men, 1500 metres. Jake Hayward, Mark Rowland, Cardiff. Josh Kerr, Danny Mackay, Edinburgh. Jake Whiteman, Jeff Whiteman, Edinburgh. Marathon, Ben Connor, Steve Vernon, Derby. Callum Hawkins, Robert Hawkins, Kilbarkin. Chris Thompson, Alan Storey, Aldership, Farnham and District. That article was by Mark Hendry. And this is from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. Finishing this book laid to rest a lot of ghosts. Jared McGuinness on writing The Coward. Jared McGuinness's debut novel The Coward charts a young man's journey following a devastating car crash. Suddenly reliant on a giant roller skate, he faces up to his traumatic past and uncertain future, navigating wrecked relationships and inaccessible streetscapes along the way. What's worse than being in a wheelchair? Being a F in a wheelchair, declares the narrator of this visceral yet immediately witty read. Here, the US-born, Edinburgh-educated author describes his writing life, then offers a gripping preview of the book. The coward's protagonist is called Jared McGuinness. Is the book fiction, autofiction or memoir? This question gets at the grit that forced the pearl, but I've tried not to use the term autofiction. This is a novel, but the main character has the same name as me. You could do a replace all with any other name and the book would still work. Fictionalising self has been around as long as the novel has been a form. Zola's uh, L'Oeuvre was described as un livre vécu, a lived book, because the main characters were fictional versions of him and his friends. I knew from experience that readers were never going to let this character not be me. I'd get the same questions, whatever I named the wheelchair guy. By naming him Jared, it was a land grab. I was getting there before the reader, making them think about the conflation we as readers make. But also, there was a part of me that didn't want, maybe naively, that plausible deniability that previous generations of novelists had. Think how many times we've come to learn that an author was just as rotten as his characters. Philip Roth is the latest and glaringly obvious example. 
the intimacy with Jared, the character, with all his tangled, mutable complexity of personhood, comes from the fact that I owned up to his and my ugliness, something that would have been harder if I was trying to represent myself in memoir, something cracked open in the writing when I admitted that his anger was mine. The sections describing the immediate aftermath of the crash are incredibly powerful. Having survived a car accident was this difficult territory to inhabit while writing. The difficulty was that I've now been in a wheelchair for 20 years. The challenge was to remember when I was readjusting my life to accommodate a wheelchair. So here I was, guy in wheelchair, lurking disability forums to understand when being disabled felt significant. This is why I love writing, using only words and gainy units of meaning to try and reproduce an experience into the head of a stranger a thousand miles, possibly a thousand years away. I may have had the advantage of personal experience from which to draw, but that's not enough to succeed. Saying that, finishing this book laid to rest a lot of ghosts. Trauma I carried was clearly processed, understood and captured in the text. It's a feat that I marvel at, especially because I know what a goofball the author is. Did you face any dilemmas where the story touches on other people's lives? Not really, because it's fiction purely. The people who actually know me are going to struggle more than the general public. Memory is plasticine, and I could easily see them struggling between what they know happened to me and the novel. Especially because I think I've done a pretty good job at the clean seams between them. It's a lived book. Even I get confused about what Jared the author did and what Jared the character got up to. My advice is just read the book. If it compels you, high five to me. If it doesn't, try to keep it to yourself. I've got bills to pay. What role does humour play in a book such as this? For The Coward, humour did a lot of practical work. Firstly, it lightened a work that explores difficult and heavy relationships and themes. I didn't want some hardy-esque march of doom and misery, but I definitely didn't want a farce. People who've had a hard go of it and come through the other side, in my experience, tend to have a joyful sense of humour. It's a defence mechanism. That definitely how the characters are using it. The snipes and jokes between father and son are their way of navigating their difficult past. It felt true to their characters and made for a better read. I find it odd when humour is lacking from a book. It's such an essential part of the human experience. Maybe we should be asking why so much of literature is po-faced. Tell us about your working day. Coffee and sugar are the Adderall for the rest of us all. I wrote final drafts of The Coward, fueled by coffee and donuts late at night, because I was a stay-at-home dad during the day. I then stopped by a pub to do admin and answer emails. It was not a sustainable approach, and I do not recommend it. These days, I work in the morning. I definitely have to switch off everything. If I just start writing, I get a lot done. If I check Twitter or the news, the day is gone. Have COVID-related restrictions affected your writing life? The closing of schools has been a pain. I can't write a thing with the girls in the house. I need quite a lot of concentration, and that's hard when tiny people are fighting over cardboard they pulled out of a bin. We're in Marseille now. Why not move to a country with two small children when you don't speak the language during a pandemic? I've been run over by a car and lived. There isn't much that scares me. Do you ever suffer from writer's block? God, yes, all the time. I try not to take it too seriously because there are actual problems in the world. My not having a synonym for shiny ready at hand is not one of them. My advice is to take a walk, call a friend, flirt with your partner, go be kind, whatever, come back later and try again. 
The Coward is launched next week in an Edinburgh bookshop event. What does the city mean to you? I moved to Edinburgh from Austin, Texas to go to university a long time ago. Edinburgh is my adopted hometown. To be more specific, Leith. I loved it there. It's real and increasingly rare community. I have very fond memories of pubs packed with old bald men wearing green greeting and belting out sunshine on Leith. So I love that this was a Scottish publisher, Canongate, that took a chance on this book. Sadly, all my launch events are virtual, but my need for a warm glass of white wine and the adulation of strangers will have to wait until more certain, less infectious times. On July the 1st, I have my launch online, hosted by the Lighthouse Bookshop and A.L. Kennedy. That will be fun. Are there downsides to a writer's life? Not mine. I live an annoyingly jammy life for a guy who can't tap dance. The Coward by Jared McGuinness is published by Canongate, £16.99. It will be launched online at 7pm on July the 1st at an event hosted by Edinburgh's Lighthouse Bookshop and chaired by A.L. Kennedy. Tickets available via lighthousebookshop.com. And that was from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.